We're back at Fictional Frontiers. When it comes to all ages entertainment, there's a tendency among leaders in that space to quote-unquote dumb down the material. Sound and fury signifying nothing is par for the course. That's why Daniel Jose Older's Dactyl Hill Squad is such a joy. It entertains but also gives us a snapshot into history as well. And here to talk about this series of novels and his approach to storytelling is Daniel himself. Daniel, thanks again for taking the time. Welcome to Fictional Frontiers. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Daniel, to begin, I want to thank you for how you approach story because I've read quite a few all-ages books over the last couple of years. We've had this show on for over 10 years, and I have to confess that most of the time it seems as if the creative forces behind the work are market forces. It's you know an approach that's kind of centered on branding and licensing, and there's really not much there. There's not much substance there. So with respect to your approach... Is it fair to say that your way of telling stories is that you go in taking elements from particular places but making certain you honor the traditions and the backgrounds that those stories come from? Um, sure, that's definitely a big piece of it. Um, I think it's about honoring the story itself first and foremost, and then that in turn leads you to then honor, yes, all the different elements that are part of that, right? So. Um, you're kind of, I don't want to say you're at the whim of the story because I think it's always a conversation between the creator and the work itself. And there's always kind of a, a to, to me, a really fun push and pull in the process of creating where you're, you know, you're following a certain level of inspiration and you're going where it takes you, but you're also bringing in your craft, you know, expertise and knowledge and understanding and analysis to really um, hone it into being kind of that, that page turn that you're trying to get out of it. Um, and, and yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of work that um, does feel very marketed. And I also think it's like a really exciting time in children's literature where there's like a whole new, it feels like a very fresh time where a lot of folks are just doing great new work. And I, I guess we're always kind of at the crossroads of it, but it seems like both are happening in very major ways right now. So it's an exciting time to be a writer, you know? Well, Daniel, as a writer, you must realize that there's power and there's influence that comes from the written word. Words can cut. <laughs> they say the pen is mightier than the sword. Some would say that the pen is a sword. Does that add additional pressure? I talked about responsibility as well. Do you think those two elements come into play here? I, I've always felt that way. Uh, I've always felt that there's a responsibility to talk about deeper things, you know, whatever that may mean. Um, in part, on a craft level, you know, I think, I think there's two parts to that. I think that we live in very heavy times, and, and not just because of this recent election, although that certainly upped the stakes a whole lot and, and, and added a lot of heaviness to this time. But the truth is we've, we've always lived in, in heavy times. You know, we, we haven't known a light time, really. And, um, you know, particularly, particularly for marginalized people in this country, um, that's just always been a truth. And I, I think the best work um, multitasks. You know, I think like the best books and movies and stories are able to take us on a great adventure and help us to sort of manage and, and move through these really challenging times. And I think you can do that while you're, you know, dealing with a whole fantastical world. You can do it when you're talking about the past, like I do in Dr. Hill Squad. There's a lot of ways to do that. And I think you can definitely, I know that you can do it without weighing down the narrative itself with just being like overly didactic, right? That's mm -hmm. a challenge for sure. Uh, what happens is because sometimes people fall into being didactic, 
then the go-in conversation becomes, oh, the second that you engage with the world around you, it's automatically didactic, yes. right? Like, like, like there's this binary almost of like you either deal with the world and tell a, a flat, boring story where you're preaching to people or you have a fun adventure that doesn't have any consideration of the world. And let's not forget that science fiction and fantasy in particular have always dealt very, you know, upfront in a very upfront way with the world. They've always been very aggressively political, yes. but in a way that very often um, toes the line of what we sort of just know to be true or assume to be true, you know, of a lot of things, or what a, a lot of people, you know, take for granted, I should say, as part of, like, their world point of view. So when they see it in a sci-fi story, things like the white savior narrative, right, mm-hmm. or, or certain gender roles, like, you know, people just assume those to be true or take them as normal, and then they don't, they don't presume that to be politics and work. But it's very political to toe that line. That's an extraordinarily political choice to make as an author that authors have been making for generations. And now that authors are really, you know, making different choices more in mass, people have a problem with it. You know, folks who are used to seeing just their own point of view over and over regurgitated to them are suddenly having to deal with other people's, and it's shocking. And you have, you know, <laughs> clashes over that, which I think are very healthy. You know, yes. people should be having these difficult conversations. That's what literature is supposed to do, is push us into, into new realms and into more difficult conversations. No, I agree with you 100%. And you really hit on something that I think really, unfortunately, this day and age still kind of gets pushed to the wayside. And that's this notion that, yes, there is history, there is material out there that you can research and look through, but you have to make certain that you also analyze the perspective that that history is being written from or by or who it's coming from. Um, oh, you, you mentioned uh, in other places online, I think it's right on point, this notion that the Orientalists have a view of the world that's very much <laughs> kind of centered on uh, colonial mindsets, if you will, and there's almost a dismissive attitude when it comes to cultures outside of their own. And so yeah. when you're trying to tell a story for audiences who may have kind of taken it hook, line, and sinker, so to speak, they've been brought up in that world uh, with that mindset, What's right. the challenge there? How do you kind of bridge that gap? Because, again, if you're trying to teach people or you're trying to inform people through your work and sure. they've been growing up in a school system that kind of reinforces those notions, how do you kind of break that mold? Well, and on one level, I think you actually do it by not, by not talking directly to them. Um, so I'm not, you know, my, the audience that I'm thinking of in my head isn't necessarily that person who, you know, who, who takes that truth to be hook, line, and sinker. Of the, of the sort of otherized other, right? Um, a lot of times I'm writing to the person who has never before seen themselves in literature and finally gets a chance yes. to, uh, you know, to find accurate representation. That's why I'm really having a, a conversation with one-on-one. And I think the, the great thing is that people get to tune in on that conversation because it is a public conversation, of course, because it's a published book, right? Mm-hmm. So they get to sit in on that and they get to take part in it. And hopefully they even find themselves in somewhere in that conversation on some level because a, the great thing about a book is it's dealing with this multiplicity of characters, of worlds, you know, of, of situations. There's so much in a book, and it gives us so many different opportunities to say, oh, wow, like that, that might not be me, but I can understand yes. certain emotional levels of that, right? So, you know, to my mind, like, the best scenario is, like, I'm, I'm talking directly to someone who has maybe never been spoken directly to by a book before. Mm. And in the meantime, other people are reading it and being like, oh, wow, you know, I hadn't considered this point of view, and they're going along for the... But 
the important thing, I think, is that it, it just takes as a given the humanity of the black and brown characters, for example. You know, like, I don't have to justify their humanity. I don't have yes. to create, a, you know, a world that other than bend the story around proving their humanity. And that's so important, especially when we're talking about, I mean, always, right? But what, what I keep bumping up against in my research is, like, these moments throughout the Civil War in the 1860s mm -hmm. when, um, you know, in the North, slavery's only been gone for a couple of decades, if that, depending on where you're talking. And these soldiers, these black soldiers are trying to fight, you know, for a cause that will free their brothers and sisters from slavery. And uh, often being massacred in the first couple of battles, things didn't go well, a lot of times because of mishandling by Union generals. And so, you know, tons of soldiers are wiped out famously, you know, we have the, the case that they show in the movie Glory, right? Yes, yes. Um, that was the Massachusetts um, 50, I was 54th, 53rd and 54th thing. Um, and, and then what happens is the next day the headlines are like, oh, these soldiers, you know, prove that they can, like, be brave in battle. You know, like, <laughs> you're talking about, like, black men in the 1860s who have survived long enough to even be in battle. Right. Like, you can't not be brave. <laughs> like, no, that's like, no. That's an obvious reality, but instead they have to prove themselves. Instead of the people who were formerly, you know, slavers having to prove themselves. It's so backward. And, and we're still sometimes under that mindset. You know, that is carried over because it's never, we've never really looked at it deeply enough to tear it apart. And so here we are, right, in, in 2019, dealing with Trump and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, that's not an accident. Those two things are very connected. And that's, that's definitely just something that I try to fight against, is like having, you know, just having these characters as humanity is, is a given, is, is just a truth in the book and not something that needs to be um, shown or demonstrated or proven. Most definitely, most definitely. And with uh, Dak the Hill Squad, we see this all front and center. And what I really appreciate about this book is that not only are you telling a story for people who really don't have a lot of stories being written for them about them, you're also kind of letting them know about a history they may not have been aware of themselves. So talk about that because even I think uh, you would probably, uh, I don't want to say admit, but you would confess that there was a lot of the uh, work in this book or a lot of the historical points that you pulled from that you weren't yeah. aware of but that you kind of totally. came across through your research. Absolutely. No, that's, that's the whole project really. Like, I mean, part number one is obviously telephone and a great story. That's always the beginning. But um, what happened was I, I had a cursory understanding of Civil War, uh, like everything going on around that time. Um, but when I started to delve deeper, there were so many stories of just, you know, just amazing stories of heroism of people that, that we don't hear about, you know, people right. that history has buried um, under the sort of just a simple narrative, like Lincoln freed the slaves, right? <laughs> what does that mean? Like, right. it's so much more complicated than that. And that complication, it turns out, is, makes for really good storytelling. Like, the, the complicated truth is always the better one to deal with in a story, because stories get better the more layers there are and the more, you know, complex we get with, with the power dynamics and the world building and all of that. I mean, that's just a, that's just a universal truth of story. Is yes. that things yes. get better when we go deeper. And so, you know, finding these stories, you know, about, like, the Vigilance Committee, which is this amazing group of black New Yorkers who really dedicated themselves both legally and militarily to defending their brothers and sisters from being kidnapped and sent down to slavery. And they did it, you know, with just so many different organizing tools and strategies, and that, that's just like, that's lost history. You know, mm. I'm sure some people know about it. There's a plaque up in the building where they were headquartered. It's there. It's not like it's 
totally erased, but it's just not in history books, and kids are not being taught this. And I just find it so inspiring, you know. And so for them to be characters in this story and then to have their stories told in the back and it really clarified, like, who was a real person and who someone I made up and what were they based on. Um, you know, I know I know kids because I was one. <laughs> I know that <laughs> kids will go and find out the rest of that story because when they get excited about something like history, you know, there's no end of resources that they can start tracking down and getting into it. And that is a really big piece of Zach the Host one. And I also think it's uh, a real credit to you that you bring in antagonists in these works or in this book in particular that really did exist. And I think sometimes <laughs> villains yeah. in history are worse than what we see you know, on the silver screen oh. or in books or what have you. So uh, we're actually going to get to Magdalas Roca in a moment, but I really want to talk about for a second... Uh, Richard Riker. Yes, Richard Riker. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what a monster. What, <laughs> what a can monster? you say? Exactly. It's that, it's the, there's two parts to that to me. Is that It's not just that there were people in history that are you know, just as terrible, if not worse, than villains on the screen. It's that those are sometimes the same people who we lionize and name building Yeah, mm -hmm. you know? And that is where we really, I think, need to get down and dirty. Like, Riker is someone who is not considered a villain in history. Wait, are you still there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, that Riker is a person who, he, you know, he may be, it's, I think the jury's still out on whether or not Riker's Island is actually named after him. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, mm -hmm. it's a little unclear to me. I think it's actually named after his family, possibly an earlier family member. But either way, He's not someone who people like hear about, like, oh, that dastardly Riker. You know, this was a city magistrate who could, you know, well have a plaque up uh, with his name on it. And I, I, I find that so disturbing. And again, that's why we're here, right? Like, that's why we're in 2019 with yes. still living in a very institutionally racist country yes. is because we've lionized so many of the people that, you know, were pro-slavery. Mm -hmm, <laughs> you know, and, mm -hmm. it, and it needs to be said, even in the North. Like, this was, that's the other piece of this, is that we part of the simplistic version of the Civil War we tell is that it was the noble, you know, totally anti-racist northerners who just yes. wanted to end, you know, the evil of slavery when the reality, of course, was much different. And that for a good portion of the war, they were more than willing to just try to, you know, get the Union sorted out and keep slavery around as that sort of was, including Lincoln. Yes. And, yes. you know, that's, that's where we need to go, is like deal with those truths, those complex realities, and the fact that there were these very villainous people that would literally kidnap people off the street mm -hmm. and sell them into slavery. And I tell you, I always get this, it's this amazing moment every time I do a school presentation and I explain who Riker was and what he did, and there's this moment where they go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> gasp, right? Oh, I can imagine. Like, yeah, and every time it's like, it really just hits home, like how he was truly so villainous. Like the textbook definition of a villain, um, and, and, and to have that reaction from kids, you know, and... These will be schools in Oklahoma, you know, all white kids just, like, horrified by the idea that someone would, like, just kidnap someone and sell them into slavery. Rightfully so. And it's like, I just think there's so much power in how we present things, right? Because yes. I think a teacher could probably tell about Riker and not really frame it that way and make him out to be kind of an okay guy. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what mm -hmm. we've been doing with American historical characters for so long. Um, I know that to be true. So the act of undoing a lot of that, I think, is really just a part of what I know to be my, my role as a, as a writer. Love it or leave it, you know, change those things that were bad, embrace what was bad, own what was bad, and right. then move forward. That's where we need to be. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think it really does bring up this really important question of sort of what is the function of literature, you know, for, for ourselves and society, and especially 
And I think there's a there's been a really interesting and I think very valid critique of Daxon Hill that it um, you know takes some very historically traumatic moments and potentially could be seen as making light of them, right? I mean that's something I definitely really, I don't see that, but <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. I, I really went out of my way to avoid making light of it, and I think what people are really saying is that you know they're not used to seeing adventure stories also deal with heavy topics. Exactly, really, right. what's going on, right? And, and again, I think that's an important conversation to be had. Um, I think it's that we're so used to, and, and this is something that happens in children's literature a lot, is that there's this notion of like the quote-unquote issues book, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where you're allowed to deal with right, stuff, right, right? right? And this book that's about that. And those books are really important. I'm certainly not missing them or saying they shouldn't exist. We need those books, but we also need stories that are fun and fast adventures that also deal with some of that heavy stuff because that heavy stuff is real. And because there's kids, and I know because, I, again, I was one of these kids, there's kids that are never going to read those issues. Books, no. Um, but still need to process historical trauma and do it with a book that takes them seriously, you know, and their pain seriously. Um, so I, I, that's why I argue for the necessity of having adventure stories that also talk about trauma and talk about how, you know, the history isn't the... the the beautiful cake that it's been sold to us as. And, and that's, you know, a lot of the piece about Dactyl Hill, really, and this is, I think, a whole other conversation in the way, but it's really about dealing with trauma. Yes. And, and, and that's sort of what's important about having that whole squad of kids is that they each deal with it and come at it from very different places um, and different backgrounds, even though they're all together in this orphanage at the beginning of the book. Um, you know, you have a character like Two-Step who ends up uh, taking a life, and what does that mean? You know, mm. like, it's not a simple thing for him at all, and that's something that he deals with throughout the course of the series. Like, that's a continuing question for him of, like, you know, yes, it might have saved someone else, but he still took a life, right? And, yeah, again, I think that's a, something I craved as a, as a younger person without knowing the language for that is stories that w- were exciting. And, yes, and would, yes. You know, have, like, this, 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 this um, swashbuckling adventure feel but also really took seriously something like life and what that meant. Instead of just being like, G.I. Joe, rat, tat, tat, you know, kill all the bad guys. Yeah, we won. High five. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, our lives are in danger and we do what we had to do, but we still have to live with the repercussions and the trauma of that. Um, Those are stories that kids are living out today. You know, 11 and 12-year-olds have to live with some stuff that they've been put in the face of. And if we don't give them, you know, stories that will recognize and respect that journey, then what are we really doing? <laughs> no, <laughs> the community we're failing. Them. No, I agree to one hundred percent, and that kind of leads me to the story itself. We haven't talked about Dactyl Hill yet, but yeah. uh, you know, kids riding pterodactyls—that's the vehicle <laughs> to tell the story. But again, I, I'm not poo-pooing that because right. again, you need a vehicle <laughs> to get the information out there, and at the same right. time, uh, if you look at history and a lot of the history that's covered, there isn't any hope. There isn't any escape there. And so with a story like this, there's right. the chance to right. actually have uh, these archetypes in play where you have characters who may be able to win in the end, even though many times in history we see that wasn't the case. So let's talk about the story itself, because again, I think Dactyl Hill is such an important uh, all-ages set of books, because not only does it tackle history, but it does it in a way that allows people, young and old, to hope. Yeah, hope is a really good word for it, and I think um, we don't get to see the stories of survival and victory enough. Not at all. Um, 
across the board, right? Um, but particularly with stories about people of color. Um, they're so often, it's the tragedy piece of it that really yes. jumps out, you know, in Hollywood, in books. And, and we do need to tell those. Obviously, you know, I'm talking to you today because I believe in dealing with the difficulty of history. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we need a map forward. You know, we need yes. um, an understanding of, of what it means to organize. And the truth of it is that there were so many um, different models of organizing and, and of surviving and of thriving, you know, throughout history. And, and people lived long and wonderful lives in the face of oppression. And we need to know how they did it so that mm-hmm. we can replicate those models and we can, you know, build on them and take and not have to reinvent the wheel over and over every time, you know, we elect another jerk. <laughs> like, you know, every time we end up in this situation, exactly. or every time... You know, we send another generation off to war. All of those pieces are pieces of this puzzle of what it means to survive in this country and, and make it through okay, and not to survive, but thrive, right? So exactly. I, really, I really did dedicate myself to finding these stories, uh, you know, and, and trying to work them into the larger story in terms of thinking about, like, art in, in, in the face of oppression, right? Now, and that's mm-hmm. why... You have that Shakespeare crew in there um, yes, because yes. there were these amazing all-black Shakespeare companies mm-hmm. even before the Civil War. Back in the Ira Aldridge and them were in the 1830s and 20s, um, you know, and against so much evil, surviving and and performing Shakespeare, you know, and just doing it in to all-black audiences on a global level. Mm. I mean, that's incredible. Oh, <laughs> that's yeah. incredible today. Ibn Khaldun has a wonderful account of history, and you see these archetypes played out again and again and again. It's not like mm. we're reinventing the wheel here, but right, uh, it's right. very clear that uh, the only way we are going to make progress is by reflecting on history, but then challenging the history we're being, we're being presented with as well. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. I mean, that's really the scope of, of, of this project, is doing that, is looking, taking a good, hard look at history, and and in, particularly in terms of world building, right? And 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 questioning what we know, what's established, and what's true. And I think doing it through the framework of of a really fun story, yes, you know, right. and, and a really great adventure. That um, I mean, it's it's really the, if you if you kind of blur your eyes, Dactyl Hill Squad is an epic fantasy. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a crew. They're going on a mission, and then they're going on a larger quest. Mm-hmm. You know, to save somebody. And they're going into a war-torn area that they're a part of, that they have to help fix or to survive. You know, it's, it's absolutely, uh, and it has all the trappings of an epic fantasy. And that's really what it is. It's just that it's str- strewn across the context of a uh, dinosaur st- riddle, <laughs> right. 1863, right? Right. Um, but, but, yeah, that's what the project is. And, and I, I hope what happens when people read it is that they say, oh, my God, I did not know that this was true. And not only does it does it blow mind that it's true, but it actually changes my whole relationship to history, because these stories, a, the fact of me not knowing them is relevant, mm-hmm. and b, what, how they how they change, you know, what history looks like now matters, and will change how we deal with the present tense and the future too. With respect to Meg Delise and the characters in the series, how important was it for you to make sure that the characters had? some sense of autonomy or some, some sense of uh, being able to take on the challenges full speed ahead, not just kind of saying we can't do anything, feeling, realizing that there is the possibility for change if they're right. willing to take on those challenges. How important, that, how important was that for you to put that in there? That's key to the whole, that's key to the whole thing. I mean, that's really where it comes to. It's, it's actually a lot like 
reminds me of this conversation that uh, I've kind of been having on an ongoing way with myself and with social media about mm-hmm. dystopias, actually. I mean, what is mm-hmm. the Civil War period if not a dystopia? Yes. I mean, what are we living today if not a dystopia? Right. But that's a whole other thing. But I'm saying, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, the, in the realm of dystopian literature, there's one kind of dystopian literature, um, I would say, more common to the past century that lands us in the most grim and, and depressing and hopeless place possible as a way of making a point, right? Mm-hmm. 1984, Brazil. You know, stories that just... Right put us in the hole and then cover the lid as their last beat. And I find those to be absolutely devastating in terms of like what we need in our life right now. You know, like mm-hmm. they're not helpful. Like they're yeah. sure they're, they might, you know, 84 is obviously a classic and it's a well-written book and it's beautiful on certain levels and whatever. All that is true. But um, when we're thinking about like literature that will guide us forward, you know, through the darkness, that's really not doing me any good if all you're going to tell me is, well, we're all screwed. So right. you might as well just give up. That's like, what that's The Walking what I, Dead is, exactly. <laughs> sure, yeah. And, and that's like, this, you know, and of course, like, literature's job is to tell a good story, and literature's job is to guide us, you know, to somewhere better. It's funny you brought up dystopia and dystopian stories. Uh, don't get me started on those, because I've always submitted <laughs> that The Walking Dead, in my opinion anyway, was a reflection of white privilege. And Oh, fascinating. I um, haven't seen it, so I can't... Yeah, well, the, the reason I say that is because... Uh, you know, I have a mixed background. My father is from India, oh, and wow. uh, my mother's from Czechoslovakia, so I'm a mutt. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but I'm of two worlds, and when I visit that part of the world, um, the Indian subcontinent, and I see the poverty there, I don't see the same level of anger and rage among that mm. population. I see hope in their eyes. They're still smiling even though they're poor. Mm. And when I see a show like The Walking Dead... Mm-hmm. In which, you know, things from a techno- technological and from a social perspective kind of collapse, you see right. the people in the story giving up hope and turning on each other. Right. But in, you know, in the real world and in our own histories, our collective histories, we see, like you said, dystopian realities that have happened in the past that are happening today. And those people don't give up hope and they don't turn on each other most of the time. It only seems like the people who turn on each other, those people who come from a place of privilege who have been so right. spoiled that it's like you took their toys away so they're going right. to unleash the <laughs> dragon so to speak right no that's, that's just my opinion okay <laughs> so no, i'm just I like uh, that qualifying that. i haven't seen the show like i said but i think that's a really fascinating take on it. Absolutely. <laughs> again daniel jose older the dactyl hill squad daniel always welcome back on fictional frontiers as we head out where can i let's just keep abreast you on the web oh um my website is danieljoseolder.net and you can find links to all my books on there. And actually, you can find the blog that I used to keep when I was a paramedic in New York for 10 years. And so that's actually the root of my writing, is, is just keeping a kind of a journal of things that happened to me as a, as a medic in the streets of New York. There so that's kind of fun. Yeah, and then I'm on Twitter at uh, DJ Older. I've always said that the most talented people are those who don't just... Uh, play in one field or work in one industry yeah. and if you look at the you know the giants throughout history they weren't just you know focusing on one discipline they kind of worked in many arenas they were writers they were scientists they were philosophers they were exactly. theologians yep. and so hey you're, you're following that course you know that's that's the way we should be you know <laughs> there we go thank you for that that's real i appreciate it yeah this has been a great conversation thank you so much thank you daniel all right take good care